Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 159th episode of the Truth Island podcast. If there is one thing that people nowadays seem to lack, it's bravery. Whether it's standing up for oneself in the workplace, posting something on social media, or even being frank with a trusted friend, it is becoming all too apparent that we are slowly becoming a generation of cowards. But how exactly can this be? Some might argue that as societies evolve and people become more educated, we have a greater tendency to be polite or civil with one another, and therefore each of us elegantly avoids something as ugly as the truth. People who tend to object too much also risk being labeled as disagreeable or difficult to be around. This label can often lead to social alienation as most people tend to prefer to hang out with those who are more easygoing and pose less of a threat to the established social order. Another argument that can be made is that perhaps society has not become more cowardly, but rather we are much more evolved, which makes us more calculating and rational in how we go about life. For example, even though a person might not like someone else, they might still need them for a favor or two down the line. Therefore, they may choose to hold their true feelings from them in order to curry that future favor. While some might call this type of risk aversion cowardly, another group might say it is extremely tactical. Joining me to help figure out if I'm just being a big old coward, I am once again joined by Kenny. Kenny, let me ask you this. A guy who always follows the speed limit, even though when there are a few cars on the road, is he being a bit too cowardly or should he be applauded for his prudence? <laughs> well, being someone who's received the speeding ticket, I would say he's very, very prudent and he should be applauded. <laughs> Here's the thing, man. I, yeah, when it comes to, I guess that makes sense, right? It's the whole question of, you know, if even the question of, you know, why do you stop at a stop at a stoplights when nobody's there? There's a difference between, you know, being reckless and being brave. And sometimes even it's hard to tell the difference between a brave person and a very, you know, insane person, because they'll perform the same actions, dive in front of a bullet for someone or, you know, run helter-skelter through, you know, uh, minefields to accomplish some tasks, some, sometimes new, uh, reasonable and noble, sometimes just self-centered and childish. But I guess the intent and why they do these things that really differentiates them, you know. So, but I, I do think you're right. I think that bravery is something that we, I mean, we could always use more of. And that's why we have awards like the Medal of Honor. And it's usually to, um, to remember and to, to, um, to put a spotlight on those people who have done, who have gone above and beyond and shown themselves to be brave in the midst of dire situations. Just thinking about what you said, I, I was reminded of this show on MTV called uh, Jackass. It was like in the early 2000s or Fear Factor. And people would be like, whoa, those guys are incredibly brave. And I, I think we have to distinguish between brave and just foolishness. Because I think there's a lot of young guys who do crazy things on skateboards. And don't get me wrong, it makes for an awesome viral video. Um, but like when we assess that kind of risk, it's, it's easy to look at that and say, well, 
what's the payoff for taking this really risky thing? It makes a cool video and, and maybe like 500,000 people view it or something. And it's funny that we're willing to risk our lives. You know, and what's interesting is that people are willing to risk their lives. They're willing to risk breaking their neck, jumping from a high place in order to get views on social media. But what they're actually afraid of is speaking up uh, and expressing their opinion. They, they would rather like jump from the roof of a house, risk breaking their neck and becoming a paraplegic than express one thing on their Facebook or one disagreeable opinion in the workplace uh, is more scarier to them than breaking their neck. And I'm like, how the heck did we get to this place? How did we get to this place where young men are you know, more afraid of like, shunning them or giving them sour faces, but it's okay for them to be driving 110 miles on the Grand Central Parkway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of those, one of those options is uh, if you make that jump from, from the building, you, you earn something, you earn fame, recognition, you earn, you're the cool kid on the block, but something along the lines of stepping up and, uh, speaking your mind about something true and something good that may be the counter, the, the contrary from what the people what people around you actually think could be, um, could, do the, I mean, could do the exact opposite. The risk for human beings, believe it or not, is not for us, it's not really physical harm. It's not all the time, not, not mainly physical harm. What we really, what we're really afraid of is uh, internal harm, you know, that social, um, being looked at as being seen as we wouldn't like to be seen or being spoken of as we would not like to be spoken of, being interacted with in a matter we wouldn't like to be interacted with. Our, our, what we really fear often is each other and uh, in a very social sense, yeah. I, I mean, I think this is like worth investigating because the, impl I mean, I actually agree with what you're saying, but the implications of what you're saying are very startling because we're basically saying that man is conditioned in such a way that his he he's more he's conditioned that he would rather risk his own life, his own flesh, his own you know breath, so to speak, rather than risk his social reputation. And I don't know if that stems from biology or if we have been socially conditioned to think this way. It actually reminds me of a. Um, a sociological theory, I, I forgot the professor who came up with this term, but uh, it was, there's this term called the idea of the disposable man. So we have these, um, I, and, and the, the, this professor wrote that like, if you watch like a lot of action movies, for example, you'll have like James Bond and he's just killing these like Russian guards left and right, right? Like James Bond goes into a place, right? And like, like all of these guys, if you think of Star Wars, all of these like countless male stormtroopers are just being shot and killed left and right. And this, this professor like puts forth this idea that society conditions men into embracing the disposable man role that like, it's, it's, it's a good form of valor and it's a good form of bravery to risk your life um, for something that you believe in or, or, or something that you should follow. And, and like, on one hand, that makes perfect sense, you know, like men have risked their life, you know, fighting in World War II and for many other good causes. But I think that what happens is that men take that idea 
and then they extrapolate it onto like dangerous skateboarding tricks or other other kind of like foolish stuff. And it never, it never, like there's never any examples of that bravery. I mean, there's a few people like maybe Martin Luther King Jr., you know, who who exemplify being brave with your words or being brave um, in some kind of um, social setting. Like that, that kind of bravery is not really depicted in films. It's not really depicted in movies. We don't really have a lot of examples of men um, doing that. We, we tend to like think of Braveheart or we tend to think of James Bond when it comes to bravery. We have very few examples of like brave men speaking out against something that's going wrong um, at a corporation. I mean, the, the closest thing I could think about that resembles that is maybe the uh, Oliver Stone, like Edward Snowden movie. But it, honestly, it's really slim. Like if you if you compare those kind of movies to like your action hero movies, I, I think there's kind of slim pickings. Yeah, I mean, we don't really talk much about bravery because it's one of those, you know, um, it, it seems as though we, uh, and I think that's okay too, but it's in a mass, when I say we talk about it, I mean, we, we don't address it in a sense, you know, it's, it's, it's always in the background of things and we're changing the definition of what it means to be brave. Bill Burr does this special comedy routine where he talks about, you know, people calling plus size models brave and and actually that's actually quite counterintuitive because if you if you say that okay because the idea is that plus size models are just as important as everyday regular models right like the the most the most common type of model and if you're calling them brave for being plus size models then what you're saying is that you are in fact lesser but you're striving and you're trying to overcome and be what, you know, be is move past your, your limitations to become this thing. So it's actually counterintuitive to call them brave, but he was saying that that's what we, that's what the modern day considers brave, right? Like you have the courage to take off your shirt and take a picture. That's what bravery is. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to do when I see a man you know, like a guy, like a fire, uh, firefighter carrying an old person and and their dog and running out of a burning building, you know? Like, what do I say to that? Like, do I say you're like a fat person who takes off their, you know, like it, he's funny with it too. But the point is simply that we we call anything brave this these days. We just say, oh, that's brave. Oh, that's this. And our language is starting to lose meaning because when you hear stories of people who have, who've literally carried their bodies miles, you know, after getting wounded and they themselves being wounded behind enemy lines to get them to safety. Now that's bravery. That's in spite of all the dangers and all the, you know, all the possible lose your life moments, you get up and you do something about it. And, you know, saying things, Winston Churchill, I would say was a brave man, brave man because he spoke up when nobody was willing to listen about Hitler many many years before the before the um, um the actual conflict broke out and um but he was but, but that's just the kind of person he was often you know you have the same thing happening today modern times we have young people speaking up about what they do believe in and we call them brave too but often they just you know they're very angry they're very disrespectful and very unkind and we think that's because they say it, they must be brave. But the truth is that 
you can say true things in a very cowardly way because bravery is not about shouting, raising your voice. And, you know, it's like we, we often equate the image of bravery to a lion. And I think that's accurate. It's just a matter of the strength and the, just the, the raw grit that it takes to do that kind of thing. But you're not an animal. You're an, you're an actual human being. I think it, it, it often it, it has to do with our idea and our sense of what it means to be brave. Our words begin, and when, when a, if you want to control a people, you must control their language. The language today is not, is very different from what it, what it, you know, what it used to be. And because it's very different from what it used to be, people are becoming different from how we used to be. I'm not saying that things in the past are always better than things in the present or, or vice versa. I'm saying that present can always learn from the past, always. But I, I, I think that, you know, um, we're, we're losing that, we're losing something about the understanding of what it means to be brave and how to go about bravery. I, I love what you're saying. And I want to, I want, I want to say I have the utmost respect for soldiers and firefighters. You know, when you think of like, let's say the job of a firefighter, fire is something that all of us humans, and I can speak from a biological standpoint, we're all afraid of, right? You turn on your stove, you're just, you're mindful, like, hey, there's a burning hot stove there. So the fact that these men are able to mentally condition themselves to run into the damn thing that biologically all of us are conditioned to fear is simply amazing. And the same thing for like, you know, men, especially like if you think of like World War One, guys who would run through no man's land or, or just make all of these incredible sacrifices uh, for their their other fellow man. I, I mean, I don't want to like I don't want to downplay that bravery because that is true bravery, bravery, the likes of which, you know, I, I probably men in our generation who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq have an idea of what that's like, uh, but probably your average millennial male who did not fight in those things has no idea what those things are about. And maybe the two things are actually connected. I remember I was speaking to this doctor and he said something um, really, he said it many years ago and it just didn't, I didn't understand it, but now all of a sudden it clicks with me. He said that the reason why working conditions were better after World War II is because the people in charge knew that they couldn't screw over these World War II veterans. Like they would just have like a revolt on their hand because when men are thrown into these very dangerous situations, when they're thrown into, you know, into trenches, foxholes, um, you know, just the worst possible conditions, they're going to be less afraid to speak up against like, hey, my health insurance sucks, or hey, um, you know, why did you fire Johnny for no reason? You know what I mean? So I, I think that sometimes, like, if you go through, like, if you go through extreme levels of hardship, if you fought in a world war, if you fought, you know, and that's kind of why you see, um, like, you know, I think the like, firefighter unions and stuff like that are a lot more vocal, because these guys risk their neck, on a daily basis. Like they, they, they don't have like comfort in their lives. Like they risk their lives. So I think when you're, when your physical life is put at risk, you become a lot braver. Like I, I could imagine if you had a guy 
let's say, who fought during World War II, right? And he saw like combat and you somehow transported him to 2021. Do you think that dude is going to be afraid about like what's on his freaking Facebook when he like fought in war? <laughs> you think that guy's going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, Jennifer is not going to like that. You know, like, so maybe, maybe the problem with our generation is that because we've been sheltered um, from some of these more harrowing and traumatic experiences, the thing that we fear the most is like, um, you know, what like Jennifer and HR thinks about us. I think, I think that might be a part of the problem is that like the, the stakes haven't been high enough and now we've become more cowardly over minor things instead of being worried about the bigger things. How does that sound to you? That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. If you, if, if you've been wrestling lions or bears and wild animals most of your life, what the hell is a feral cat to you? Like, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. It, it, this is one of the important things, one of the only good things I've ever seen about suffering. I'm a person, I don't like it. I'm not going to say that anybody should go around looking for it or enjoy it, but changes us for the better. It makes us a bit, Often it makes us very sympathetic because we kind of, it opens our eyes, it wakes us up from the mundane. It's like one day you, you're going through so much pain and strangeness, and especially if you're not one of those persons, because there's a way suffering can make you a better person or makes you make you a very wicked person. It works, it, depending on how you deal with it. Because if you're one who is constantly looking because of your suffering for attention and making sure that everybody knows you're suffering and making sure that nobody else can have a good time because you're suffering you're you're becoming a monster but as a kind of person who when when suffering begins in your life it's almost like they wake up and everything just seems so blurry and at the same time so clear the things that matter to you so much you're kind of shoes you are the gucci or the or whatever you know the tommy hilfiger shirts or the brand name glasses that you really love they just stop meaning so much when your friends are talking about the most senseless things that you were things things that you honestly enjoyed before but now you find them incredibly meaningless because mm. because something has happened to wake you up to call you out of the world, to look back at the world as it really is. And people you would never, you would have never seen before, you all of a sudden you begin to notice them and you begin to see that they're, they, they're suffering too. So it's, if suffering does that to us, and I think hardships do the same thing, hardships are often equated to suffering. So there's a certain kind of hardship that once you overcome it you can't help but be brave and i hear them about be brave people they don't go around thinking to themselves how brave they are that's that's like you know like a like a patient person doesn't think well look at me being patient so i'm taking my time waiting for him and that's you're not a patient person if you recognize yourself as a thing you dwell upon it you're most likely not the thing because a brave person doesn't have to know they're brave in order to be brave they're just being doing what they know to be right and true and good 
it comes it it comes almost naturally to them and, and I, I mean that and i i believe that people can get there anybody can get there there's a certain kind of hardship that you overcome in your life and it's so much easier to look at the world the right way and respond the right way and if that means being brave if that means behaving in a way that we that society often deems as brave then yeah I like what you're saying. You're saying that it's actually the circumstances around you that kind of shape how brave you will, you are. And the more you've suffered, the more brave you become. And this kind of gets me thinking that perhaps societies are being set up in a way where you're not really fully comfortable, but you're comfortable enough that you risk losing something. And I, I think there's like this, this balance. I think a good example of this, have you ever seen the movie uh, V for Vendetta? V for Vendetta, yes. Like, I, there, you know, there's this scene where, um, you know, the guy in the mask, V, I forget his name, he locks Natalie Portman in this room and shaves her head and she's like filled in a room with rats and all this other stuff. And she like, like the suffering is so bad that, you know, once she spends like six months living in that prison, she's like, okay, I don't really care about risking my life anymore. Yeah, I'll do whatever. Like, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Whereas if you kind of have some level of comfort, like some level of like, well, it could always be worse. Then you start becoming more cowardly. Like there was this guy, another sociologist, and he said something remarkably. Now, people are going to think this is conspiracy theory, but I'm just going to throw this out here. There's this one sociologist who said that governments deliberately allow large numbers of homeless people to roam around as a warning sign to the lower classes to stay in place. Because what, what these homeless people are supposed to do is scare you enough that you're afraid of losing what little you have. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so like the society makes you comfortable enough that like you, you're like, well, I, I don't want to end up like this homeless guy. It's too, it's too frightening. Even though my boss treats me like shit or whatever, I don't want to end up homeless. So I, I, I got to keep my mouth. So I got to be careful. Otherwise I might end up like this guy and the government's deliberately lets these people roam around just to kind of scare you enough to stay in place. Like, Hey, if you step out of line, this could be you or whatever. And that's, that's like an example where that like some level of comfort is keeping you like not, you're not happy, but at the same time, you're, you're cowardly because you're afraid of losing what little you have. And I'm wondering if like, maybe if the suffering gets even worse, like as the suffering increases, because I live in New York City and let me tell you, most brazen people in all of New York City are the homeless. They will speak their mind and say whatever the hell it is that they wanna say, because why is that? It's because they have nothing to lose, right? They They got nothing to lose. So they're the most brazen people you know, on the face of the earth, because there's nothing you can take away from these people at that point. That's, that's how they got to that level. So I'm wondering if like, if it's just a question of like, maybe the suffering needs to get a little worse. Like if people were starving more, if there was like a food shortage or something really, really, really drastic. And that little comfort that we're clinging to was taken away would then suddenly people become braver. How do you, how do you feel about that theory? Theoretically, it's possible because it doesn't just make people braver. It, it could also make people monsters. It can make people much worse than they actually are. Uh, that's so than they actually are now. But so it's it's a it's a double-sided coin. You never know what you're going to get. 
depending on the person. It all depends on the person you're dealing with. There's some people that hunger turns in, they, hunger turns them into criminals and it turns them into murderous criminals, while hunger turns others into hard workers and it turns them into more, you know, into a, into a very generous kind of person because they felt it and they don't want anybody else to feel it. So they work hard and make enough for themselves and their families and for the strangers that, that they may meet. Uh, while others want to simply rob their strangers, uh, rob, yeah, rob, yeah, rob strangers and uh, murder them if necessary to escape their hunger. So suffering, suffering theoretically does that, um, but it, it does it halfway depending on the people you're, you're dealing with. But, and it is another thing, it's choice, human choice, because human beings, when we're not suffering, and there's some people in this world who will not suffer. They just won't. They won't suffer, at least not the way the world, not the way many people, other people suffer. You know, they, they'll be born into a rich family, you enjoy good health, good education, and so forth, and just have a wonderful, really brilliant life. And good good to you. There's nothing wrong with that. And no one should ever be ashamed of living a brilliant life. And the point is that if they're not careful, they end up becoming very um, shallow pastes of human being, human beings. Choice, people can choose to change the way they see the world and the way they interact with the world. I think was Siddhartha was born in a very wealthy palace, very in a palace, wealthy palace. He was a prince, for goodness sakes. And, but when he saw the world and uh, saw the suffering in it, he chose to do something to, to change his own life because he wanted to seek something that would end suffering. And uh, um, I'm not saying that people should leave anything, but because it's, who am I to say that? That's, that's bollocks. But, you know, the point is simply that you can choose to make choice. You can choose to see the world ac accurately. You can choose to step back every now and then. And it doesn't really take long. Human beings, we're kind of, in spite of all our conditioning, believe it or not, it doesn't take long to undo it all. Um, some of it may take a while longer, but the general sense of, being this cosmic cog in a machine or feeling this numbness towards a fellow man. It can all be undone in a very short time, but we have to choose to step away for a little bit and we have to choose to choose how we're gonna see the world. Now, you've actually made a very strong case for human free will and I'm actually loving it because, okay, so what ends up happening is when man is confronted with suffering, he chooses one of two things. He chooses one, like, oh my God, I don't want that to happen to me. Oh, 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 I have to obey the masters. I have to like do whatever they tell me. I don't want that to happen to me. Please, please, yeah. not me. <laughs> right, right. Like that's 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 the first reaction to suffering. Yeah. Right, is like like I don't want that. I don't want to be that guy. Please, please, not me. Or they're like, no human being should live like this. I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this world a better place. I don't care if I lose every, what little I have. I, I, th th this is unacceptable. Like this is, this is, there's a, a line in the sand that has been crossed and I will risk everything. I think a perfect example of this is a place like Nazi Germany. And when I think about it, people think that, oh, well, the Jews were just used as a scapegoat. When you actually think deeper into this issue, anyone, any German, any Christian German that helped a Jew was sent to the concentration camp themselves. 
So if you were a, if you were a Christian German and you decided, you know what, I'm going to like help these Jews, you would be executed or you would be sent to the concentration camp or some other concentration camp yourself. And this actually resulted in Germans making one of two decisions. One, they said, um, please, please, not me. I, I'll do whatever you want, you know, Mr. Hitler. I'll do whatever it is that you please. The Jewish people are living right there. You can go get them. Or some of them, you know, did the right thing and said, no human being should be treated this way. I'm going to risk my life uh, to save these people. And th that's the thing about these totalitarian governments is that they give the people being oppressed enough like a, like a little safety and a little comfort that they're hoping that they cower and just try and protect themselves. Like they're, they're, the totalitarian government hopes that people choose the self-preservation option over the helping other option. Mm -hmm. And free will comes into the, it comes into the picture where we start, we start encouraging people to start moving into the helping other direction as opposed to the self-preservation option. How the hell do we get people to start doing that? The thing is, is that's part of the free will is that you really can't. You know, that's the point of free will is that no one can make you do anything is that um, people can often give you advice and advice itself is actually crossing a line often but it's still a good um, but you can't to force someone or to make someone do it would be a violation of free will itself now the best that we can do is we can show them why why we think doing one thing is better than the other and so that's what artists do, especially writers, um, authors um, in your books, at least good authors usually try to help us understand these things and lead us to not to make decision for us, but to show us either the beauty or the destruction of making one decision over another. And uh, that usually inspires us to, to pick or strengthens us to pick a certain thing um, over the over another and so what, what uh this is this is this is where this is where we need authors authors this is where we need comedians philosophies are like those cousins that are just super boring you don't really want to talk to them you're like yeah you know you know, <laughs> you know morality is really just it's not really it's a real concept. guys you have to do the right thing yeah, no, yeah it's like, it's like your 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 cousin's a little young daughter who's just you know she just read narnia for the first time and all of a sudden she knows everything so they're still they still know they still know a thing or two. They still know what they're talking about. They're often very, you know, boring, but they still know what they're talking about. And so the, you find that, um, and even scientists in their own realm help us make these kinds of decisions too. There is a more, you know, forceful and very, you know, do it my way or the highway. It's That's why I would say that, but authors, authors do it best. Because when it comes to making decisions, moral decisions and, and, uh, and ultimate life decisions, um, good authors help you understand what those decisions are and the consequences of making um, making the, the the left or the right decision. Well, sir, you just gave the best defense of art that I've ever heard, um, and, and you're one hundred percent right in that because. If you lecture somebody and say, no, 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 you need to be brave, you need to stand up, it's really easy for anyone to lecture anybody. It's really easy for someone to sit in their chair and say, no, man, just be brave. 
Um, because people are going to be like, don't tell me what to do. You're not in my situation and so forth. But when a great artist or an author comes along and tells their story or tells, because when the author tells their story or someone else's story, they're not directly saying you need to live this way. They're not saying you need to be uh, as brave as me or as brave and so and so. I'm just letting you know what my story is. I'm just, just, I'm just, I'm telling you this story and make what you will of it. You can choose to be brave or you could choose to be a coward. No one's saying anything. But I would say that people who read those books, probably eight out of 10 times, they do get inspired and they get braver as a result. So when they read these books or they hear these stories, they say to themselves, well, this guy was a human being. I'm a human being, you know, like what, you know, if this guy could do it, so could I. And I think you're right. I think we have a lot of people, and maybe I'm one of them, that sits on a high horse and tells people what to do and tells them that they ought to be brave and they ought to do this, whereas we actually just need more brave people. I think that's what it comes down to. We need more courageous and brave people that are living by example, and they're not telling people to be brave. They're just doing it. They're just doing it with through their art, through their opinions, or, or just through some kind of, they're, they're transcending some kind of circumstance that they're thrusted in. And that starts inspiring people. It's, it's kind of like that Phoenix that people see. And, and it just, it, 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 like the best call to action is just taking action. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing, we, we still get inspired by when we hear glorious, honorable, beautiful things that people have done. I always had this, saying that you become what you admire and uh, if when we hear those kind of stories and we start admiring those kinds of people and we you know really admire them not like oh that's a nice thing johnny no it's a, it's really admire it's 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 a thing of the heart you know you kind of become like them eventually start making decisions immense because we hold we usually think we we usually hold mental mental pictures and our mental pictures are the often help us make decisions we don't we're not really as rational as we like to think we are you know some of us are but many of us aren't and so we hold these mental pictures of the ideal person or the ideal situations and so forth we those are the kind of things that guide our lives and sometimes sometimes for the good sometimes for the bad yes absolutely okay um, before we close out here, I want to kind of just because, you know, we're talking about like Nazis and, you know, like George Washington and Martha Luther King Jr. We're talking about these exceptional men. I want to kind of come up with some takeaways for our average man, right? Because like, I, I, I can get that people not, you know, this, uh, this is a huge ask. Like, we're not going to take some dude, we're not going to take some 32-year-old millennial and turn him into the guy from V for Vendetta. Let's just be, <laughs> let's just be real for a second, right? Let's say I'm going to let's let's use a fictional guy right now. Let's say we have a guy named Stan. He's 36 years old. He sells life insurance for a living, earns 55K a year. But he he notices things are collapsing around him. He knows that his son's school really sucks. He knows his boss is treating everyone like crap. He has a friend in his life that is making some poor choices and he's kind of afraid to tell his friend the truth and speak up and confront his friend. How do we get this like 36 year old guy who has like a kind of comfy job to start being a little bit more braver in life? There's got, there's got to be some micro steps 
that this guy can take to, to start telling his friend, like, hey, buddy, you really need to stop drinking or to go into his son's school and say, hey, um, like my kid's getting bullied or, hey, like, you know, you need to really start cracking down on X, Y and Z or, hey, you know, you fired like half our he needs to go to his boss and say you fired half our team and we could have really used that extra help. It's getting really busy around here. How do we get that guy to just get a little bit more braver? Because I, I think that. Uh, with anything, you know, asking people to become George Washington, that's not going to work. But I think incremental bravery might might be something that we can aim for. Well, you have to get him, you, someone like that, you have to get him where he's at in the sense of, you know, you have to get him with, uh, with the things that he loves. And uh, it's the same thing, you know, if he likes MacGyver, then he has to see MacGyver doing the same thing. And he has to, if he likes Jack Reacher, he's got to read about Jack Reacher doing the same thing. And he's got, it's got to start in his own life. All these things, we can't change the world. And I mean it, we really cannot. We can try, but it's not going to work. You will fail eventually. And you're, once you, and you're not going to fail in the sense you think you are, but this is it. We can't change the world until we've done, we've, we've changed something in ourselves. We just can't. We, we, we often try, but fail miserably. It starts at home. It starts in, it starts in the soul and the person. And, and it starts, it starts in, our, in our, my friend and I talk about, talk about our fiefdom, the, the 50 yards that we're in charge of. You know, like, what do we, do we, do we do things adequately there? When people come into that 50 yards, do we take care of them? Oh, you mean like in life, you're in charge of 50 yards and then the yeah. other 50 yards, like a football yeah. field. Oh, I love that. That's a great, and I'm stealing Everything that. That's awesome. Everything <laughs> is in charge of 50 yards, you know? That's yeah. a great analogy. I love that. Yeah. You, so, let me tell you that, that we took a two-week break and you're really, you're really on the money today, I have to say. <laughs> and so he, in, his idea is that, you know, we... Do we take care of those things within our charge, the things that are right in front of us? And so before he goes out into the world to, first of all, he's got he's got he's got to love those things. He's got to love the people who are like that. And then does he take care of his kid? Does his kid trust him enough to tell him about these things? And does he trust him enough to have the wisdom to deal with it well? You know, because most most times you tell the you tell the parents, the parents go storm and tell the teachers, the teachers deal with it, and then the kid gets bullied twice as much. So it, I'm not saying that these things are like super, they're super easy, barely an inconvenience at all. I know they're they're some of them are complex and some of them take time. Um, but it starts at home, it starts in our in our own minds and our own souls, peace in our hearts and our souls and our and our minds and and then it expands to the people around us and so that 50 yards of the things that we're in charge of our our houses our cars our friends our families and keeps growing and whoever comes into that range of uh of influence i i, I think you're right and, and maybe maybe something that i just thought of i want to add to this is maybe there has to be a drastic catalyst that happens in that comfy guy's life you know, because may maybe what happens is that his kid is being bullied, you know, day after day, but then all of a sudden his kid is jumped 
and he his kid is attacked by another kid with a switchblade or, or and gets like a scar or something like that or or or, or maybe maybe his boss you know, is working him really hard. And then the boss all of a sudden says, you know what, for the next three months, you're going to have to come in on Saturday and Sunday. So yeah. there has to be like an extreme catalyst. There has to be something that kind of shakes the foundation of his comfort that then triggers the inward growth in which you just spoke of. Because what, what happens with people is that if they're a little too comfortable, they're depressed but what happens is that when they're depressed, they go home, they have two blue moons, and they watch Netflix. That's what they do. They, they go, they, they have like, they open the fridge. They, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> blue moon, if you're low on cash, Budweiser, you know, you, you go into the fridge, you grab your blue moon, yeah, and, then you, and then you watch what's on Netflix, right? But then it takes your kid being attacked by a switchblade. It takes you, your boss telling you that you have to come in on Saturdays and Sundays. Now it has to take some level, some drastic catalyst that shakes the foundation of your comfort where you're like, I can't take it anymore. That's the thing that's then going to trigger the inner growth. And that's going to trigger the inner bravery. Yeah. Usually that's, that's it. There has to be something that stretches us, that pounds and beats us inside. And, you know, yeah. Um, it's just the nature of it's the nature of the forceful growth. If you don't grow naturally, you're going to be forced to grow. And usually, um, um, the powers that be have a way of dealing with you and making sure that you're not too stagnant for too long. There's something. There's something a little like I'm a little upset, I guess. And the reason I am a little upset is because what this basically means is that life is just a giant waiting game. You know, like I, I actually, I, I thought that the pandemic, I'd be like, all right, well now the pandemic is going to really trigger people. And now they're really going to start taking action and take to this, you know, streets or do But now I am starting to realize it's not bad enough. Like we have to, we have to keep waiting for it to just get worse and worse and worse. And it sucks. I, I guess life is just a waiting game. Like, like it, people, people won't get off their derrieres and do anything until until the roof is literally on fire and even then they might start rationalizing it no it's not really on fire it's only it's only burning the it's only burning the kitchen roof it's not here in the living room yet you know like i i guess i guess there's a a, a point of like the only reason people have not acted is that there's not enough hunger in their bellies yet which is quite frightening and sickening that it takes it takes it really takes us to be again at the brink of destruction before anyone gets off their their cushiony seat yeah yeah it, it is i mean it, it says something about who we are as as living beings even even some even this covid situation rocked a lot of people not everybody but rocked a lot of people for some people for the better for some others for the worst and um but life is always happening there's life doesn't stop for anyone if i die today life goes on my wife goes on, my kid goes on. The world of the earth keeps spinning. So I think because life goes on, people are always encountering pounding, breaking moments. They always are. And if a good friend of mine calls it, the same friend actually calls it, he says that human beings, we don't do anything until there's a crisis. Personal crisis, usually we, we don't, 
we're not willing to look deal with anything until it until shit literally hit not, not not literally but shit hits the fan so and i think there's always crises you know there's always crises in the lives of people who don't the very nature of not paying attention to life means that you will have crises you just will because you're not avoiding things you should be avoiding you're not seeing the potholes you're driving through life on your phone you're not you're going to crash into something eventually and it's the nature it's just the nature of things so those who don't pay attention those who are um, comfortable as you say by the nature by the very nature of being that kind of concept because there's nothing wrong with being comfortable in your life and think and and, and being thankful for that because that to be thankful for the comfort is to pay attention to the comfort and say it's been given it's, it's it, it means you're paying attention to something it means you're an attentive person but to be comfortable and at the same time attentionless you know you're going to make a mistake you're going to crash you're going to and things are going to burn and you're going to wake up for a minute you go to sleep again and crash and burn again and wake up for a minute until you try to stay in this place where um, where you open your eyes and see life for what it actually is and the people around you for what they actually are and so forth absolutely i'm going to ask you one last question and then we're going to end it's the same it's the same i'm going to ask you the same exact question as i asked um my friend Brett, who I also do this podcast with. Mm. And this is my question. If COVID was a disease as bad as the Black Plague, where mm. 50, like it had a 50% mortality rate, like, 50, mm. like, like one out of two people were dying around you. Mm. Do you think that would be enough to kind of rock us? Or do you think that people would still kind of be rationalizing it and still still saying it's not so bad i've got it good it's okay that my um sister died it's okay that you know i have i have three kids and you know two of them are still alive do you think people would still be making these kind of rationalizations would a 50 percent mortality rate rock their world or do you think they they or, or do you think they would still be like just justifying what life they have but human beings have a way of surprising you but no, I, I think it would have rocked people's world and worlds entirely. I think it would have been spectacularly difficult. I mean, I, I think, you know, human beings have a way of getting over things pretty quickly. We get normalized, you know, we get very acclimated to the weather. So I think it would have still rocked us. And I think, but eventually we'd have come back to, you know, it is what it is business as usual, but it would have, it would have rocked us a lot more, a lot more and perhaps a lot longer than COVID did, absolutely. Imagine living in a world where one out of two people dies and people are like, it is what it is. I'll have a Bud Light, please. Just a minute. It's it's like funny, but horrific at the same time. Uh, (laughs) Kenny, thank you so much. I think I feel a little braver now after this this talk. (laughs) No worries. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it. No worries. This concludes the 159th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.